0: Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Try Mechanics Try Smarter Podcast. is a beautiful Friday in Yorkshire and today's episode is going to be a little bit of a different one. So what we're going to do this week is that we're going to concentrate a little bit more on the nutrition side of things. So I've had a lot of nutrition questions sent in and I thought it's going to take me weeks to try and get through some of these things but I thought instead what we'll do is we'll we'll change the Friday episode to being a nutrition based one. First before we just start all of that, I just want to give you a kind of bit of housekeeping side of things. So just to let you know that I'll be uh, visiting the Ilkley Try on Sunday, which I'm really looking forward to see. Absolutely fantastic try that tends to sell out almost as quickly as Roth does, which is phenomenal, Um, over in obviously beautiful Ilkley. So we'll be there uh, giving out a couple of prizes for the raffle. And also uh, just basically just handing out a few kind of leaflets and chatting to people. So if you are there, if you want to answer any questions, just just come and have a chat. I'll be kind of hanging around, I should think, around the race around the reception. So moving on to today's episode, uh, we're going to think about these nutrition questions. And what we're going to do is I'm going to break up Friday's nutrition side of things into kind of three categories. Or what I view as the kind of three distinct categories of nutrition when it comes to um, the kind of sports side of things and the triathlon side of things. So the first one we're going to think about is nutrition as it relates to training. And today I'm going to think a little bit more about, kind of expand on the the nutrition that we should be thinking about around training. So last week I discussed about um, the kind of nutritional considerations before we actually go training, particularly for long uh, training sessions and possibly also for long races. This week we're going to think a little bit about the kind of after side of things, so the kind of post-training, the kind of post-workout side of things. So, the way I think about this has has probably changed over the years um definitely i mean the way the whole kind of sports nutrition has thought about this has changed because we started to run along these lines of that it's uh, the the kind of critical phase for nutrition post workout was within this this first thirty minutes or so, and then we had this very very short window to utilize these gains now. A lot of those, unfortunately, a lot of those windows came from certain um, studies and actually certain practices, so it tends to come from the kind of bodybuilding side of things, uh, which was that if you got your kind of protein and uh, carbohydrates in straight after a training session, a weight training session, within the first 30 minutes, you maximise the anabolic effects and the kind of muscle building effect. And for all intents and purposes, this is true. So, in that, that phase, just after that first initial window, just after doing some heavy weight lifting, your muscles are very, very sensitive to building and very sensitive to using the insulin that you can create from taking in that protein and carbohydrates. And that it uses those protein and carbohydrates, those amino acids, to repair, recover, and essentially build bigger and stronger muscles. The key thing is that a lot of the studies that really back this up um, weren't really based on real life. Uh, they tended to be fasted studies, so the, the participants, in order so that the food that they had before the session um, didn't change the results. They often went into them in the morning, fasted, and then were asked to consume what was often a relatively large amount of protein and carbohydrates in a very simple form. So the key thing about that is that because they had an empty stomach it was absorbed relatively quickly. The proteins were often in the form of kind of isolate whey proteins very very rapidly absorbed or proteins that have been given uh, essentially enzymes to enable them to be absorbed a little bit quicker along with some things like maltodextrin and various other carbohydrates that are very very rapidly absorbed. Now the key thing is this did often result in enhanced signals of anabolic activity. the thing is, when we when we measure these things in research, you end you get kind of soft and hard endpoints, and the soft endpoints tend to be things like uh, increased strength, which obviously can come from lots of different angles. And the hard points tend to be measuring things like the activity of certain molecules that indicate that muscle is being built. So we often used, or they used hard endpoints to dictate that actually, in this, if you took in nutrition during this post workout phase, you increase that. Now that was obviously heavily relying on the insulin response. And then a lot of other evidence came along to say, well, if you didn't give the muscles that energy straight away or that protein straight away, actually you got greater growth hormone effects, which was suggested as causing better long-term changes and gains. So it was obviously been very right up in the air. And a lot of people that have come along have said that there isn't really such thing as this 30-minute window. This window can extend out for hours. Now, what we have to relate this to is, is the fact that we're not bodybuilders. We're endurance athletes. How much... Uh, damage we're doing in terms of muscle damage is is debatable um, but also how much benefit we then get from uh, hammering in the kind of nutrition straight after a session is also debatable. The other key thing is is considering what else we're doing so the reason that I wanted to answer this question is um, Kit asked me, Kit Walker on uh, Facebook actually asked if you're doing um multiple sessions throughout a day and you're doing let's say you've done the first session a nice run in the morning fasted which is something i really do advise doing and i'll talk about that in a second what should you do afterwards well the key thing is that what we what we are trying to do rather than really think about the muscle repair side of things obviously that is important uh, particularly when it is running as opposed to say cycling because running being a higher impact tends to cause more muscle damage it often feels like we've We've kind of done less almost in terms of that side of things because we always think about cycling as this almost heavyweight pushing activity, but it tends to do a lot less damage in terms of the actual intrinsic damage of the muscle because it's not impactful, plus it tends to use the muscles in what's called a concentric pattern, which is the kind of contraction and shortening of the muscle, whereas running uses a lot of muscles in what's called an eccentric pattern, which is it contracting and then lengthening. That tends to cause more damage to the actual intrinsic um, layout of the muscle. So, running tends to be, and when I'm personally thinking about my post workout nutrition, I'm definitely more considerate of it when I'm talking about running than I am about cycling, particularly when it's harder running on harder surfaces or kind of faster running on very, very high impact surfaces, particularly post races, etc. So, going back to what we were saying is that um, when we're considering this, we're really considering um, what we need to do later on in the day and, and repairing or kind of uh, getting as much kind of glycogen restocked as possible. The caveat to that is when we're doing sessions that are um, directly aimed at depleting the glycogen in the morning session and then not um, having it there ready for the evening session so that that session becomes um, a kind of low or kind of low carbohydrate or a low glycogen state. Now the key thing about that is that that session has to be relatively easy. If you go for a kind of hard session in the morning, trying to um, deplete glycogen as much as you can and then you don't replete it ready for the evening session, you're not going to be able to go very hard, or you are, but it won't last very long um, in terms of both the session itself but also the long-term effect. Now, what we've got to remember is that training is a couple of things. We are trying to show the body that we can do more, but also at the same time sometimes we're trying to throw the body a bit of a curveball, to use American expression, that Basically, we show it something it can't do, or we show it something we want it to do, or we just make it a little bit inefficient for a very short. Sorry, make it inefficient for a very short period of time, and then we force it to adapt. And one way of doing that is to train in a relatively low glycogen state. That forces um, an upregulation of something called AMPK, which is where it's a kind of mild. Uh, it's often stimulated when we're uh, in kind of starvation state, but it means that the energy of the muscle essentially the energy of the cell in the muscle is, re- is running relatively low. What it then does, it means that we um, force changes in terms of using that energy better, efficiency changes in the mitochondria, but also things like bringing more fat out of fat tissue and various other changes that, that tend to occur that obviously are very beneficial. So let, that's why you need to think about it's a very individual thing. So let's say in this instance we're doing a relatively nice easy session in the morning um, but it's a run, and it's been an hour long, and we've been off-road, on-road, and we've, we've busted the legs just a little bit. Now, what we need to think of is is how best we repair from that. So, when I'm thinking about that repair, we're looking at two sides. We're looking at the glycogen side, and we're looking at the muscle repair side. So, when it comes to the muscle repair side, obviously protein is king. So we're thinking about taking in a good amount of protein, but we don't need it in the speed that bodybuilders do. And actually there is probably some evidence that because we're not tearing apart a whole muscle group and, and really working a lot of large muscles that um, in that way that we don't really want to be taking in isolate proteins. We actually were better off probably taking a site different Um, spectrum of proteins that therefore will absorb that protein over the course of the next few hours. This will allow us a kind of longer, more consistent muscle repair that is the kind of thing that essentially we'd rather have for our endurance athlete. So when I'm thinking of that, i am rather having a kind of single whey protein shake with water, which will be your kind of, uh, you know, whey isolate that the bodybuilders will use. I think it's much better to use something with a bit of whey a bit of casein in and again going for a kind of whey like a concentrate there's really no need to pay double the price for an ice egg at all um, using a good quality whey but also I like to use proteins from different sources I like a whey protein I like a casein protein so a protein from milk I like the egg protein it's a bit of a mix um, and also like collagen based proteins um, that are very high in glycine and, and those things because they're really important for repairing the kind of tissues and the connective tissues so, the post-workout kind of workout, um, feeding for me tends to um, comprise of a shake, um, normally, but it's a little bit different. It'll have um, eggs that have been cooked, so I tend to, when I cook my eggs for um, putting into a shake, I do them in a very specific way. And there is a reason why I do this. So I fry the eggs very slowly, so they're not exposed to high heat. I put them in a little bit of butter, but I fry them to the point at which I make essentially the, the white has just cooked and it's not burnt, it's not crisped, it's just cooked and then the yolk is still completely runny. Now the reason I do this is because if you cook an egg white the protein becomes more available. If you have a raw egg white, you actually can uh, block some of the uptake of some of the nutrients in the egg yolk, so it's that's a bad thing too. But also we want that protein to be available. However, the egg yolk, the proteins that are in there and the vitamins often working the other way around, They're actually when we, um, one of my biggest bugbears is overcooking eggs, mostly because they taste pretty rubbish when you overcook them and they go all dry, but also because the things like the cholesterol and various sort of sensitive molecules that we actually want from that egg are very sensitive to heat. Therefore, when you overcook them, they go a bit rancid, which is why I think that overcooked eggs don't really taste nice at all. I think eggs should be a little bit runny. So that's the way I do the eggs for the smoothie. So they kind of go in that smoothie. I have put a bit of whey protein, and a bit of pea protein as well. Pea protein has been shown to have really beneficial effects on the gut bacteria. So a little bit of that goes in too. I often put a little bit of milk, or often actually in this case, I don't really tend to have too much milk, particularly in the morning. I um, I tend to prefer milk from A2 cows, so that's Jersey cows, because A2 milk is better. Um, essentially better tolerated than A1 milk, which is your kind of normal Frisian cows. That's simply because we have been drinking A2 type milk for a very long time. Whereas it's really only recent history where we've switched over to the A1 type, which is the kind of Frisian type of carry. So we can actually absorb better and we tolerate. Now if you look in your supermarket, you'll often see the kind of A2 milk you don't need to buy A2 milk. What you should buy is jersey milk, because jersey milk is predominantly A2 anyway. It doesn't have the branding on it and doesn't cost twice the price. It also tastes a lot better. The best jersey milk to go for is the Sainsbury's. Taste the difference, unhomogenized jersey milk. It's phenomenally good. But unhomogenized is always better. The hum- unhomogenized you can tell because you have a little bit of layer of cream at the top. So any unhomogenised jersey milk is fantastic. Anyway. So I also have that in it and then obviously I normally put in my kind of spice mix that's a bit like the smoothie that I normally use. I have a bit of cinnamon in there that helps control blood sugar levels post-workout. A bit of ginger, turmeric and cocoa powder in there because they act as anti-inflammatories. Now when we were discussing this before about the idea of using anti-inflammatories around training is normally not a good thing but those are a very different class. So when we're using something like an NSAID or something essentially ibuprofen or, or aspirin, then we're dampening inflammation in a very direct way. When we're using something like turmeric or um, your kind of curry spices or cinnamon or ginger, what we're doing, they, it's a very similar to the way the adaptogenic herbs work for controlling or helping our adrenal glands, is they tend to, if, the, if everything's working perfectly they don't do very much. So if there's not really much inflammation going on at all around your gut then those spices won't really do a lot, but if there's inappropriate levels of inflammation they'll help keep things in check. We don't really fully understand how these compounds work yet, but it's something that probably is going to increase in research over the next decade or so. But all I know is from evidence, from experimentation, that these are the kind of things, along with things like fish oil, that tend to control inflammation rather than dampen it. So therefore, they don't cause the inhibition of the training effect that you can get from taking high-dose anti-inflammatories or antioxidants. So that, those things are in there as well. And then there's the carbohydrate source. So I prefer unrefined carbohydrates every time and actually now what I'll tend to do is I'll actually um, I've got often some boiled uh, sweet potato into, turned into mash that goes in the fridge that goes into these shakes now that has two reasons one is because it's called it's cellular and the reason I use sweet potato as opposed to regular potato is that regular potato is just a starch whereas sweet potato is actually what's called cellular which means it has the actual cells of the plant in it This means that everything, in terms of absorption, slows down a little bit. You get less of a dramatic insulin response, but also our gut tolerates it a little better. It's also a little bit better for our gut bacteria. The other thing about it is that if you heat potato and both pasta, potato, wheat, any starch, and then allow it to cool, you actually develop something called resistant starch in it. If you do this with rice particularly coconut rice you develop a lot of resistant starch and this can be really really beneficial both for you in terms of taking in the because it tends to slow the absorption of that carbohydrate down but also for your gut bacteria i'm going to talk about resistant starch a little bit more in future episodes because it's an absolutely fascinating subject trying to encourage your your own bacteria to to function well is absolutely critical to your health and actually can have a significant impact both in your general health and on your training and racing. But getting a bit of that kind of resistant carb in post-workout uh, is, is really useful as well. And I tend to also throw in a bit of banana. But now, Again my bananas are a bit of resistant starch because if you take a green banana then it has a bit of resistant starch in it and a bit of uh, fresh starch or readily absorbed starch in it. So I tend to buy a bunch of green bananas, the greenest I can find, half them up and then put them in the freezer so that resistant starch is preserved and that then goes in the smoothie as well so already I'm taking in a little bit of carbohydrates but I'm not taking in a big load I've got to consider the fact that I'm relatively good at burning fat therefore I don't want to take in too much. Now this is something that we want to try and train in we want to try and train in the less reliance on glycogen so when we're thinking about fat burning or kind of increasing fat adaptation, it's not really trying to burn more fat directly, it's really trying to burn more fat so that we don't need quite as much glycogen and that allows us to go for longer, basically. That's the end result. So that gets thrown in there as well. And sometimes I put a few oats in there as well. So oats are um, a very different thing. So oats are the kind of epitome of a well uh, of a whole grain that we can digest, particularly in the raw form. Now, when we're thinking about real whole grains in terms of kind of wheats, we wouldn't eat wheat on its own. It would be very difficult to eat, but it also has a lot of things in it that tend to block its absorption. But actually, oats are relatively good on that front. They have relatively low amounts of gluten in them. Um, and various other um, inflammatory compounds. so They're relatively good on that front and they're also quite slowly absorbed. They get quicker and quicker uh, absorbed the more they cooked. So if you're having porridge with a bit of sugar and things in then that carbohydrate will be very rapidly absorbed. But again, you've got to try and think about why you're doing this. So if you've got multiple sessions or say you multiple high intensity sessions, then you may um, think about going towards a slightly more, uh, essentially faster carbohydrate source. So having porridge, having oats that have been that have been essentially soaked all with milk, where they the GI index is, is gone up and we're actually absorbing them a little faster. But if you're going to be doing a morning session and then not training again until the evening, you don't need to worry too much about getting these carbohydrates to absorb really, really rapidly. It's better to kind of restock glycogen like, know, over a slightly longer period of time because what then that'll do is it'll prevent that big insulin response that can often change a lot of things within the body as well in terms of a negative side of things. The other side of things is at this moment, it's quite a good time to get a bit of fructose in too. Only a small amount. Again, um, often we overdo these things. Having a little bit of fruit at that point is is probably quite beneficial. That a bit of fructose from the banana would do that quite nicely because fructose helps restock the liver glycogen. So, the, the basic end up is don't worry about the fat side of things. We've shown often that actually that doesn't change things too much. And actually, there is evidence that higher fat dairy is a better recovery source. Um, than lower-fat dairy, and this could be simply because it slows down the absorption a little bit, which means that you get it over a slightly longer period of time. So rather than getting a sudden dump of nutrients, you get them over a kind of a couple of hours, which tends to allow a slightly slower um, assimilation of those nutrients into the muscle and the tissues, which often ends in a better result. So that should keep things relatively simple on that subject. So I'm going to leave that one now, and then we're going to start to think a little bit about the second nutrition question that I want to. So What I wanted to do really was divide this podcast into essentially the nutrition in training, um, nutrition in racing and then finding a bit of nutrition in injury because that's a topic that I'm really interested in and we're going to talk talk a little bit more about when you have got a tendon injury and what you can then do to help um, treat that using nutrition. So the second question I'm going to look at is the kind of nutrition in racing side of things. and I was asked on Twitter about um, what causes the kind of gut shutdown during long distance racing and what can you do to prevent it? So this is a really, really common question. And I'll be honest, it has become a common question or has become more common because of the use of modern sports nutrition. In my mind, modern sports nutrition, the majority of it is absolutely useless. And the reason that is, is because most of it's based on maltodextrin. I don't feel that maltodextrin should be anywhere near sports nutrition, and I'll explain why. When we are exercising, our digestion is limited based on the intensity. Now that's a critical point. We often look at the pro athletes that are racing at, let's say, eighty to eighty-five percent of them of their kind of hour effort, both for swimming, biking, and running. So, they're exercising at very high intensity, which means their digestion is relatively low. Now, that is why they tend to get away with using liquids and gels, and um, particularly for the the kind of first part of the race and the bike portion. But they often tend to switch over to the very simple sugars things like coke in the last portion in a marathon and that's simply because at that point they're exercising at such a high relative intensity because of the amount of fatigue in their bodies that actually they, they all they can absorb at that point is that simple um, sugars now the other thing is that they are exercising a very high intensity which means their digestion is relatively low so they need to stick to relatively simple molecules so for them they can go from the kind of simple sugars, as such as sugar, um, the kind of table sugar, which is glucose and fructose, or they can go for singular sugars like glucose or fructose, or the short change such as maltodextrin. But they are unable to do that because of that high intensity. Now, if you then take an age group athlete that's say going at um, anywhere between sixty-five and seventy-five percent, they could be in the realms where their actually their digestion is not only still a little still functioning, particularly on the bike. Um, but also that they're actually not exercising at a high enough intensity to obliterate the insulin response that you can get from taking in a big dump of sugar. So if you're taking a big dump of sugar when you're, when you're not exercising, you produce an insulin response. And it's long been thought that you can't produce that same response when you're exercising. But the problem is, is those studies were based on people doing relatively high intensity exercise, i.e. often over 80% of effort. And the problem with that is that, yes, that is true. At that point, you are probably going to be absorbing the sugar as quickly as you're using it. Therefore, there is no insulin required. However, if you're only going along at 65% and you're taking it relatively easy on the bike, particularly in the first portion, then you're probably um, still going to be able to create that insulin response. And if you do create that insulin response from, let's say, taking in a single gel in one go, in one slurp, then it's likely that that insulin response is actually going to force your body to try and use just sugars. And again, this is the same reason the rationale of not having sugary things or sweet things or carbohydrate-based things just before a training session, simply because if you force your body all the time into burnt carb-burning mode, that's all it's going to burn. Once it's burnt through that, it's then using its glycogen stores, and it takes quite a long time for it to then to switch to start using fats again. And by that point, we can then often have felt the signals and things that are telling us like we're bonking and then we're hitting the wall. So the same rationale goes. So when you think about age groupers, I tend to link the style of food to the the intensity. So if you're the kind of age group that is pushing towards 80 percent, then you can probably get away with gels and those kind of simple sugars, but if you're at the lower spender spectrum then maybe you start looking at the solid food side of things. Now the problem is, and this is something I addressed in my last Ironman, I actually used a completely different nutrition uh, strategy and used something that I've made myself. Unfortunately I don't really want to talk about that for now, um, just simply because at at some point in in the future I'd like to think about getting that to market, just simply because I really feel like it offers a um, a tangible uh, compromise. But needless to say, it had the some of the elements of the kind of solid food side of things, but maybe not in the kind of bar form. And I decided that was perfect for the intensity that I was riding at, and it turned out to be true. I would tend to ride um, the Ironman effort at about 70 to 75%, um, simply because I focused more on the kind of aerodynamics and the speed side of things rather than the effort I can put out, and I wanted to give myself the best chance for a good marathon. So I wasn't going to use gels, and I wasn't going to use... Uh, essentially those sugars. Now, coming back to the original question, why is it that often so many people get the kind of gut rot in in races? A large part of it is to do with maltodextrin. So you have this idea of osmolality. When you take in a sugar, you need to take in water into the stomach, into the intestines to be able to absorb and digest that sugar. That's often why, when people find, particularly when they're lower carbohydrate and they have a big load of sugar, they often feel very thirsty for quite a long time and they often put on a lot of weight. They often notice two or three kilos can go on in a few days. Now, that isn't fat, that is simply water that's been sucked into the gut and the stomach. And This is why a lot of Ironman athletes end up being heavier at the end of a race because they actually suck in a lot of water. Now, the key thing is if you're starting off, let's say, at the start of a bike and the bike leg, and you may have nine to 12 or 13 hours left of racing. Now if you're already um, drinking sugary things, sucking water, that water is probably not going to go away very quickly. It actually can take days for that water to go away. So by the time you get to the run, your stomach is swollen, your intestines are swollen. The more swollen that gets, because the, the problem is, if that gets swollen, it's actually the tissues around the gut that get very swollen. Now, when we absorb food, or absorb anything, we absorb it through the lining of the gut. It gets transported through those cells and through that tissue. So if you imagine that that tissue has become swollen and the distance has become much greater, it's gonna get to a point where you can't absorb that you, any molecules, i.e. food or, or energy, through that gut. And that's what causes the shutdown. That's what causes people to basically shut down completely and not be able to run at all. And all they can do is walk because the body has said, right, you're not absorbing anything anymore. Therefore, I have to take you down to the lowest intensity we can get away with and still burn. Our only energy source now is fat and a bit of glycogen left. And that's it. We're not taking anything more. And so I'm going to slow you right down. Now, that's why we tend to get that stomach discomfort. Now, Thinking back to the idea of osmolality, so I actually, I think I just made a mistake in the first part when I spoke about this. Thinking about the osmolality, it's actually, uh, sugar has a high osmolality, which means it draws more water in, and these starches have a low osmolality, so it's actually the low osmolality that we're going for. The thing about maltodextrin is it has that high osmolality, so it's, it essentially draws a lot of that water in, so it has the negative effects that we get from sugar but it also um, takes a little while to break down because it is a polymer or is a a, a collection of glucose molecules stuck together. So towards the end part of a race, it's likely that we're in something called enzyme fatigue. So if you were to eat the same food or the same uh, molecule over and over and over again, at some point you wouldn't be able to produce the enzymes to actually break the um, the molecule or or the food down. Now, it's likely this could be happening in races, it does open up the prospect of whether something like a digestive enzyme, a carbohydrate digesting enzyme, is actually might be beneficial for situations like this, because later on into a race, our ability to then break that down might be compromised, but it's not something that's been heavily studied, So, but it's something that could um, be useful in the future. But the key thing is that if we're at that stage, we can break down very little of this sugar. So, later on into a race, Rather than trying to take in these complex foods where we're not going to really be able to absorb them because of that, um, essentially that swelling around the gut but also the lack of enzymes, we don't really want to be taking something like maltodextrin that's going to be pulling more water in. We're much better off taking something very simple, um, something like Coke. And that's why a lot of athletes have found anecdotally that they've switched over to things like Coke, um, particularly towards the last part of a race, because it was the only thing they could actually absorb. And there's good rationale for that. Particularly with Coke or something that is made of sucrose, which is one glucose molecule, one fructose molecule, that could actually be the ideal thing for an end of an Ironman. The reasoning is, is because at that point your muscles need glucose; they don't need fructose. But what does need fructose is the liver. The liver needs some fructose to restock the liver glycogen. It is the signals that are sent from the liver the low glycogen signals that are sent to the brain that actually interpret whether we're bonking or not. And the key thing is that that fructose could be really important for staving off those feelings of bonking. So we have the fructose going in that restocks the liver glycogen and we have the glucose that goes to the muscles. So it's also very easily absorbed and doesn't cause as much swelling, even though there is obviously the drawing of the water. What tends to happen with sugar, so in the studies looking at this osmolality is that the initial uh, space that's taken up in the stomach is much greater with sugar than it is with these starches. But within 30 minutes then things have equalised. Often the actual stomach has emptied quicker um, with some of those, um, essentially some of those sugars. Often claims from companies selling starches that the sugar, the stomach empties quicker with those starches but they, we're normally talking about seconds to minutes difference. The key thing is that the, the, the pressure, everything equalises after about 30 minutes. Indicating the body started to absorb those sugars. Now, if you take maltodextrin in but you don't have the enzymes around anymore to digest it, then that could be causing a lot of problems. So, thinking back to this, thinking back to why we're getting that gut distress, one major thing we have to try and avoid is maltodextrin. There's really no place for it because it doesn't really fit very well into the early part of the race where you want to be taking slower absorbed carbohydrates or possibly even going towards solid food or semi solid food. Um, but also then it doesn't have a place towards the end of a race either because it causes that swelling but actually not in a time or not in a way you're able to actually absorb it so thinking about racing let's uh, just think about what the alternatives are so towards the start of a bike you've got the option of the the kind of um, solid or the semi-solid food so the semi-solid idea was what I went down in the last Ironman but it it wasn't gels because I do not really tolerate them but essentially I'd made my own, went for the semi-solid argument um, as opposed to going for the uh, the kind of solid food that I find don't, doesn't really sit on my stomach. The other key thing is that I did use in that formulation something called um, highly branched cyclic dextrin, which is essentially a kind of low osmolality starch, very similar to the super starch, but actually it's been created for sports nutrition, so it doesn't have the same chalky texture. And it's relatively easy to get hold of, but I find that sits very well on my stomach. and is isn't absorbed as rapidly as a lot of other... Um, uh, essentially the, the, the maltodextrin or the sugars it doesn't cause any stomach distress and I had a lot of it during that um, the bike leg and caused no stomach distress at all so I was very pleased so that kind of side of things um, on the bike side of things so those kind of slower absorbed starches um, and then switching on the run, switching to definitely something uh, essentially faster at all also on the run I switched to having a bit more honey and water in the, in the, the homemade gels that I was carrying but also a lot of coke that's something that I plan to do. I wanted to do that. I wanted to have that glucose and fructose, and it and it served me very well. So that's, that's something to think about. So I would think about eliminating all the maltodextrin because the problem is is that maltodextrin falls into almost every um, sports nutrition product because it's supposedly the ideal thing. It's a halfway house. Fortunately, by being the halfway house, it can accomplishes absolutely nothing. It's on the wrong. It's not on the two ends of the spectrum that we actually want for long distance racing. Are going from the relatively slowly absorbed to relatively quickly absorbed in the end something also like vitargo. Vitargo is an interesting thing it is a starch it is easy on the stomach but it's very rapidly absorbed so vitargo is very good for the end of race two now i think vitago on its own probably isn't that useful just simply because i think you lack having that fructose but possibly something like vitargo and then fructose together could form a very potent combination um the other thing i say is going for something like coke which is obviously very useful because if you do an Ironman, it's normally on the course. So that's why I you to have a go at, have a think about looking at the, your nutrition to see whether it contains more and start trying to remove yourself from it, moving towards making your own possibly new sports nutrition. It's very easy to pick up these as kind of white powders and therefore do a bit of a your own formulation. So I'm going to leave that side of things there. If anyone has any questions on that, please feel free to ask and I'll try and ask, answer things in a little bit more depth. But that gives you no view as to why those things happen. So the final part for the next kind of five ten minutes or so i'm just going to talk a little bit more about the idea of nutrition and injury so i talked about the relationship and about how the fact that we want to have a low inflammatory element or a low inflammatory time in our diet particularly that kind of post-training phase where we're trying to recover and overnight Um, but what do we do when we actually have an injury so let's say we've got a tendon injury how do we improve its recovery um, now, on subsequent training uh, segments in the show, we'll probably talk a little bit about the training involved in this because it's obviously a topic that distresses a lot of people because a tendon injury can and muscle injuries can linger for a very long time. But in terms of nutrition, there are a lot of things we can do. So the first thing again is to, uh, is to go on the anti-inflammatory side, but on those natural anti-inflammatories such as the turmeric, ginger and cinnamon as great examples. But also things like avocados, nuts and seeds as well are also great. And olive oil, the acid in olive oil is a potent anti-inflammatory. The other one is fish oil. Fish oil has been proven to be an excellent aid to recovery in those situations. So that's one end of the side of things. But what specifically can we do? So we have to increase our vitamin C intake. That's one thing. It doesn't need to be massive, but it does need to be significant. And the best ways to increase our Vitamin C, it's taking a little bit more, uh, there's obviously citrus fruits that everyone knows, but if you're not really much of a fruit eater, which I'm not, the, the leafy greens, kale, spinach, chard, and those greens tend to have quite a lot of spinach in broccoli, sorry has a lot of Vitamin C in too. So those gr- dark greens can do really well and they also absorb relatively well too. Um, 'd uh done aside probably not going for the full on doses of vitamin C um, you can do some people will find that the kind of max you know taking large doses of relatively pure vitamin C can work um, in in severe tendon injury but actually it tends to cause more gastric stress than it actually helps so I tend to like it coming from the diet The other side of things is you need to improve or take in a little bit more collagen um, based proteins or proteins that are based on essentially protein that you, re- you need to kind of connective tissue type proteins so the collagen if you think about where collagen comes from it's connective tissue of animals so you're trying to repair your collagen so you want a good amount of, of amino acids such as glycine which is a very predominant amino acid in the connective tissue so the best example of that the best way to do that is make your own bone broth now a lot of people think of bone broth and think it must be something really complicated but it really isn't all you need to do for bone broth is take a chicken. So next time you have a chicken, have the whole, get the whole chicken. It's, it's often a lot cheaper. And Now, one little bit of advice on this is get a free-range whole chicken. Now, that's not because I, I believe necessarily, although I do really believe in animal welfare, but a, a free-range whole chicken is so different to a normal whole chicken. For starters, the leg meat is, is brown as opposed to white. It shows that it moved around, it did something. It's not covered in massive layers of fat that uh, essentially say that it just sat around doing nothing and also it tends not to be injected with the water that gets injected into the other chickens to make them bulk out and look bigger, which is why often when you cook them they kind of shrink down. That makes very poor quality meat, it doesn't taste very nice, but to be honest they're not much more expensive. Just to compare prices, in Morrisons you'll pay £2.50 to £3 a kilo for a regular chicken and £4 a kilo for a, 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 a much better tasting, much healthier free range chicken. The key thing about that is that it's once you've cooked that whole chicken, so instead of getting the chicken breasts that are just essentially protein and have very little else in them, eat the whole thing. So cook the whole thing, use it for various different things. But when you've got all the bones and the kind of carcass, take them, kind of break them up a little bit, put them into if you've got a pressure cooker, that's perfect, it quarters the amount of cooking time. But if not, put them into a slow cooker or a stock pot and just simmer them away for you know, 10 to 12 hours if you're using a slow cooker or a stock pot or a pressure cooker you're doing a couple of hours. It's well worth purchasing one. Because once you'll get what you'll get then is and if you break up the bones as well. So if you if the bones are all soft and broken up, that's perfect. So what I tend to do is cook them for a while, then open up the cooker, break the bones up again, and then allow them to cook a little bit more. And then after that I strain the mixture off so that you get rid of the bones. But then you retain, essentially, this kind of jelly-like mixture. So if you put it in the fridge, it'll solidify into a jelly, and that is gelatin. That is collagen proteins. Those are so powerful at helping us not only repair the gut, because so, actually that's predominantly what the protein that we use to repair the gut, those collagen and glycine-based proteins. But also they're phenomenally good for repairing connective tissue. If you combine them with vitamin C, you've got a very, very powerful combination. So what you can do is you can actually the way I do it is I make a nice chicken bone broth and then make a chicken soup with lots of vegetables and lots of green vegetables, you know, some broccoli, something on those low side. So and you have that two or three, you can have that twice a day or even just once a day. It'll dramatically accelerate the healing process. Now this isn't just for tendon injuries; this can be for all injuries. But that is a way of using nutrition to really enhance that recovery process. The other thing is hydration, making sure you're well hydrated but also hydrating in a way that actually hydrates the tissues is using, essentially salts or um, buffer agents such as um, I use uh, potassium bicarbonate. Um, by using salts or using, I, I drink um, essentially bouillon in the morning, if you have salted water you actually absorb a little bit more of it and it, it allows you to hydrate the tissues a little better. The other thing that is very useful in, in helping to heal tens of injuries is magnesium. Magnesium is absolutely critical, along with zinc, to, to repairing these tissues. I know most of us are deficient in magnesium because the high magnesium foods aren't very high in magnesium anymore, such as the green leafy veg. But I actually have found a really benefit from spraying on magnesium because it's actually absorbed through the skin very well. So not only do I lie in a bath with magnesium salts, and these are different from Epsom salts, Magnesium, you want magnesium chloride, not magnesium sulfate. So you get magnesium chloride, and you don't have to pay a lot for it. You can buy a packet of kind of uh, magnesium flakes off Amazon for about £5, or magnesium spray for about 8 £9, or you can buy kilos of the stuff for a fraction of that price off ebay um, as magnesium chloride crystals and then make your own so it's very easy to make magnesium spray is that you just mix half magnesium with half water essentially the same weight in in both or same volume sorry in both probably slightly more water because if you make it too concentrated it can irritate the skin slightly and then you spray that directly on to the area of the tendon and the issue you're having now that sounds a bit strange to be spraying it directly on and how that could work but actually it's absorbed directly through the skin into the tissue and it will help the healing process and actually there is evidence that this has been done and it does improve healing of things like tennis elbow so it's definitely something to try um, I'll definitely give that a go. So, those are a few ideas to enhance the kind of tendon recovery issue. The other thing, so one last thing, is probiotics. How much of those things we absorb and how well we absorb them is often later down to our gut. Now, when I think about probiotics, I used to think about the actual molecules themselves, the actual probiotics tablets themselves. Now, I tend to ferment a lot of my food instead. So, I'll have my own homemade sauerkraut. Very easy to make if you get a head of cabbage and the appropriate jar and in three days to a week you've got your own homemade sauerkraut which is fantastically full of probiotics, all the right ones for your gut, but also make your own yogurt. Very easy to make your own yogurt. You can actually get a probiotic capsule and make your own yogurt from that which will dramatically increase the amount of bacteria you take in. The other thing is if you're feeding in the right way. So having good fruits, vegetables and anything that's fermentable tends to feed the bacteria. Having a range of vegetables as well. If you have a lot of one singular vegetable, sometimes you can cause problems of overgrowth to bacteria just because you'll grow that bacteria that you actually are feeding essentially. So those are a few ideas really to start working on. So I'm going to leave it there for this kind of nutrition segment. So um, give that a go. Give those few uh, things a go. And if you've got any questions about that, um, then feel free to ask and I'll see if I can answer them in subsequent sessions thank you very much thank you for listening and goodbye